Ian, one wonders what Britain would have, how he would have responded to the glare of publicity in this centenary year, whether it was something he would have actually, as a man and as a composer, relished in any way at all because he was so private. I think he was a real, like so many artists, he was really conflicted about publicity and really conflicted about status and... I suppose it was also the English gentleman thing. I mean, he was, you know, presenting himself very clearly as an English gentleman in a sense. So if you look at Gloriana, when he wrote Gloriana, he was absolutely insistent that it was presented as a as a gala um, performance in front of the royal family and the great and the good. And then, of course, he suffered this terrible reverse where everybody hated it, and in a way, not surprisingly, because... He couldn't write a piece that would conform to people's expectations of what a coronation opera should be. He wrote a complex, ambiguous piece, which is what he was as an artist. So Mm. I think he always had this slightly embarrassed conflict about wanting to be in the establishment. He said that saying, if I had been born 200 years ago, I would have been a court composer. Um, That, at the same time, is actually being a very private, tortured, uh, ambiguous artistic creator. Well that that ambiguity is an interesting one because um, there are these contradictions, this profound insecurity and inhibition Mm. that you talk Mm. about and the astonishing boldness and confidence of the composition. Mm -hmm. I mean it's precisely what he wants it to be not a note too many or too few. Yeah and he only lost that at the end of his life. I mean I think the interesting thing about Paul Kilday's recent Biography. The most interesting thing, critically, is is the reassessment of the late works um, and his championing championing of the late works. But and I think he's right to champion them. But when he was writing Death in Venice or The Last Drink, which I, he he had this uncertainty about him, which he never had in his life before. He said to Colin Matthews uh, and David Matthews after the first playthrough of The String Quartet, "Is, is, it, is it okay?" And uh, he had sketch material, this sort of thing. Whereas before, he'd always just had it in his head and it just flowed out. Classics are releasing 10 albums, new and reissued, during the, the coming year. You play a significant part in, in their contribution mm-hmm. to the centenary year with three new mm-hmm. releases. A disc of um, song settings with Antonio Papano at the piano, a new war requiem conducted by Papano, and live recording from the 2011 Albra mm-hmm. Festival of The Rape of Lucretia. Each of these discs are shining examples or enshrine shining examples of his great skills as a word setter. I mean that was an astonishing gift and perhaps his greatest gift would you say? Yes and I, I, I do see it as a gift um, and something that's very difficult to analyse. I mean he talked about it in terms of recapturing the the sort of English word setting that, that, that Purcell had managed but I think it, it, it goes beyond that because he goes beyond Purcell in, in what he 
achieved in terms of the breadth of it. I mean, you may we can argue about whether or not Purcell was a greater composer, but I mean, without a doubt, Britain is the first great opera composer in the English language because he just obviously had an extraordinary feel for natural English word setting. He takes the poem, he has an idea about it, he grabs it and he sort of takes it, takes possession of it, mm-hmm. but it, it remains very convincing always. I think. Yes, and there's also this innate sense of theatre about his word setting, mm-hmm. um, even outside of opera. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, a lot of his work is highly theatrical and that is so instinctive, it's something you, you cannot be taught. Talking about word setting brings us to his muse, his partner, his rock, Peter Pierce. Um, as a tenor, it's a question you must get asked a lot. How difficult is it finding your way independent of the peer's legacy? I think it, as, you, as you work your way into becoming a, 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 a professional singer, eventually the influence is there, but you, you leave it behind because you have to find your own ways of doing things and you're busy and you don't end up listening a lot to other people I think sometimes the great beauty of his voice although his voice is a, not a classically mm. beautiful instrument mm. he has an amazing gift with uh, register and with uh, line and with, with breath actually, extraordinary um, breath but I think it's, it, you sing as, as you sing and in the end you find your own way What's interesting about the Great Bear, I think, is I mean, I, have, I haven't sung Grimes, and I, maybe I never will. But I think if you if you do try and use a classical, a classic sort of technique on that, it doesn't really. I don't think it's written for somebody thinking about that. It's written in a very. It's written for somebody who actually uses a lot of head, head voice all the way through their voice. It's quite an old. I mean, it's, I think a Fisher D scale does that a lot. It's a lot of sort of this very domey sort yeah, of sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've heard. The held antennas who are, some of the held antennas who are cast in this role now sort of really have terrible problems with Huge. that piece. Why haven't you sung um, Grimes? Um, uh, they're a tall, thin fisherman. <laughs> uh, because I think sometimes uh, opera houses are very literal <laughs> minded. I mean, I really have had people say to me or of me that I would be hopelessly cast as Peter Grimes because he's supposed to be a. 
uh, a great big bulky fisherman in a, one of those jumpers. And I mean, it just so the sort of. I mean, I. The problem is that, of course, I. I object to that personally, obviously, because I quite like to sing it. Maybe, but I also just think how dark. said uh, he's he, he's right up there as an opera composer mm. um, I mean I really think right up there mm. along with Strauss and mm. in the 20th century because of the volume of theatre work he wrote mm. for the, works he wrote for the stage and I suppose it's easy to say but his operas were essentially about aspects of himself in so mm. many ways he chose very very carefully <laughs> and specifically um, you know, and he was this outsider, this mm. homosexual at a time of illegality, mm. pacifist in a mm. time of war. I mean, that must have made had a profound effect on him. Yes, but again, this, this extraordinary um, paradox that he was absolutely in the middle of the establishment, the great cultural figure of the post-war period, friends with the Queen and the Queen Mother, writing these things, making a lot of money... Um, you know, really, and as I said, he said he would have been a court composer. But at the same time, these these things made him um, made him an outsider. But also, I think there was a natural aversion in in him to to being too central. Mm. Um, he found that there was a sort of embarrassment in it. I mean, as far as the homosexuality goes, his position as this great established composer allowed him to lead. A life with Peter Pears, which is a sort of extraordinary um, portent of what is now happening in terms of um, mm. gay marriage mm. uh, in, in here and in America. Mm. But you know, fifty years early, <laughs> and once he, they'd gone over that very difficult period at the beginning mm. of the fifties, when um, there was there was quite a lot of um, hounding of homosexuals in public life. Um, I think he managed to reasonably, you know, I mean, unpleasant homophobic sniggering, but. I think he didn't really prevent it. It's, it's a ghastly hypocrisy, isn't it, mm. that we now see for what it was. Mm. But I think he did, apart from all that, there's, there's the way in which, as an artist, he, he sort of, he wanted to inhabit the centre, but he sort of pulled away from it. So he writes, you know, he's asked to write a grand opera for, for Covent Garden, and uh, he writes one for all men, so it's sort of not quite in the mainstream. Yes. Or he writes this coronation opera and doesn't do quite what he's expected to do, or... He writes these amazing church parable operas in the 60s. Or um, Death in Venice, and you say that a lot of his operas are about himself, and Death in Venice is so much about himself, and not because it's about somebody who becomes obsessed um, by a boy, although it's partly about that, but because it's about somebody who is in this position of being, in this case, a literary line, not a musical line, but it's about how can you really be a creative artist um, but be established in this way what you really need as a, as a, as a, as a creative artist is to expose yourself to the possibility of indignity mm. um, and 
that's a lot of what the opera's about, I think. That element of, of um, contradiction that you feel in VF, particularly, um, mm. uh, and every time I see Billy Budd, mm. I think, you know, how is it possible this man who knows so well what is going on mm. um, is able to kind of step back under the, the cloak of duty mm. and... Uh, and, and actually let this boy down so mm. criminally. Um, uh, that makes a good theatre, of course. Yeah. But um, um, again, it's a piece I haven't done. I mean, I'd love to do on stage and I haven't done yet. So I will understand it better. Although I think it, you know, it works very well in concert. But it would be it would be great to explore it on stage. Yes, and uh, I think all that comes out in the last scene. But I could have saved him. I could have saved him. He knew it. Even his ship makes me wait. Lordly Lord silenced them. One senses in both those characters, Veer mm. and Aschenbach, mm. a profound loneliness, a terrible loneliness. Yes, yes. And one suspects that despite his lifelong yes. um, union with peers, that his soul was very lonely. I, I get that feeling sort of listening to his, his writing and his music. Do well, you? Yes, I do. And I also get a lot of, you know, even in things which are supposed to be celebratory, there's, a, there's something very dark and lonely go going on. I mean, in the Michelangelo sonnets, they're not sort of really straightforward love poems at all. And the relationship with peers, which is celebrated in one sense in the Michelangelo sonnets, come, came out of a very complicated situation we increasingly realise, in which he was in love with somebody else, but couldn't cope with that relationship. And and he was very, I think he was very emotionally needy throughout his life. And, and Piers, in a sense, didn't always give him what he needed because he was off doing his own thing. Yes. And, and, Pier, uh, and Britain was left to to, to 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 go through this. I mean, this sort of purgatorial career in one sense. I mean, of course, it was all about Britain's career was was all about Britain as a great composer, and so in one sense, it was all about him. But I think for him, it was always really about doing what he saw as his duty and I mean working unbelievably hard punishing himself um, and always doing sort of I mean he's much criticised for using people and but in another sense if, if people approached him in the right way people like William Plomer who wrote several of his libretti or, or the family by but they understood what he needed mm. as an artist and mm. they didn't demand more of him um, and I th I think you look I just there's one tiny little example where um Rostropovich asked, um, you know, the eight or ten most distinguished living composers to write variations on a on a theme for Paul Zacher's 80th or 90th birthday. And Britain was the only one who actually did what he was asked because he just felt, you know, I've been asked to do this thing and I'll do it. And the others came up with their own pieces because they didn't want to be boxed in. But he had a real sense of just duty.
Turning to Rape of Lucretia, mm. um, the dark psychology of this piece mm. um, runs very deep. And and are you of the belief that the male chorus, which is the role you sing, mm. is again Britain? Um, because I always think his response to the tale at the end of the opera mm. is markedly different from the female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's so crucial because people patronise this piece to bits. And they say it's this, oh God, he imposed this terrible Christian um, sort of framework and it's false to what the piece is really about and it was just stuck on at the end. And it's not, it's not true. I mean, it was, it was focused more when the last scene was written, but the, the, the conceit is there right from the beginning, the conceit of having these two modern commentators on an ancient story. Um, Lucretia is absolutely... Um, uh, a story from antiquity which was commented on and absorbed into the Christian tradition right from the beginning, from, from St Augustine onwards, uh, and then in, in Renaissance art, um, in Chaucer. In, it's, 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 a, it's a story which has been given a Christian interpretation, a Christian understanding right from the beginning. But I think also, dra- dramatically, if you look at what Britain was interested in at the time, he was very interested in, in, in theatrical technique. He was working with Eric Crozier, who was too... There's a sort of Brechtian <laughs> alienation effect going on where we've got these narrators, but actually in the course of the opera, they are getting more and more involved. So in fact, they're sort of untrustworthy narrators. They're not giving us the moral of the story. They're giving us their understanding. And as you say, crucially, at the very end of the piece, the understanding of the female chorus and the male chorus is very, very different. Tell us about the song disc with Papano, mm. um, who is this wonderfully sympathetic musician in every mm. way, I think, mm. is a terrific pianist. Wonderful pianist. Now, uh, the Michelangelo sonnets are so significant because they were the first, mm-hmm. it was the first work he wrote for peers. Mm. Um, but tell us about the disc generally. Well, they're all, I suppose, they're all pieces I've been performing for a, a long, long time, more or less. Um, Winter words, particularly, and and songs from the Chinese. I you know I've been doing for well, winter words. I've been doing continuously. You know, 
endlessly for 20 years. Songs from the Chinese I did 20 years ago and actually haven't really revisited since, so it was great to go back to those. The others, more or less, a lot. Um, I think there's an enormous variety in them. That's one thing that's very striking. I mean, sometimes you feel there's a sort of similar emotional shape. I mean, if you look at the the endings of the of Winter Words, Michelangelo sonnets, Huddle in Fragments, they all have this similar way of ending with something rather sublime and but grand. Mm. How long, how long, how long, how long, how long? I'm interested in what Graham Johnson said in that recent documentary you did about how diff- Britain might have been a completely different composer if he'd gone to Vienna to study with Albert mm. Berg. Mm. What, a, what an interesting idea. Mm. Um, but um, I'm glad he didn't, are you? Yes, I'm glad he avoided um, sort of issue, anything doctrinaire. I think he was always very practical and pragmatic, and I think that's a great thing to be as a composer on the whole. And also, you know, that what there is, an, there is a, a quality in Britain's music that relates to the place he lived and, yes. and the place he, he, you know, and the world he inhabited and, um, and even that peculiarly English inhibition that we've talked about, yes. which, which um, plays its part in his pieces. Yes. But I think his music, I mean, so something Tony was very was noticing a lot as we were doing these songs is how much Britain's music is based on tension and release and relationships of, of semitones so we feel more or less it's, it's, it, I don't think he, he would have worked well within a system where dissonance had been totally uh, liberated and emancipated I think he needed that tension and release structure Now, as far as War Requiem is concerned, um, Parche Stravinsky and Parche Boulez, both mm. of whom didn't like it. Um, to me, as with Grimes, this is a shiny example of a masterpiece that went straight to the hearts and minds of mm-hmm. its audience. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that Grimes, at its first performance, and War Requiem's first performance, made enormous impacts mm. instantly. There was no question of people saying they recognised what it yeah. was. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's um, well, it's hard to say, but if I had to choose one Britain piece, I think it might be that. Mm. I think it's extraordinary. I mean, I've done it. I think I've done it more than 
most pieces that I've done. I mean, maybe I've done some of the Schubert cycles more, but I've, I've done it about 60 times, something like that. And uh, it's always a, a highly effective piece, which is one of the objections to it, I think. And, you know, it's much more cool to be a little bit difficult. Um, and distance. And, yes. There's no distance at all. No. It's so yeah. brutally honest. And the fear, I mean, you know, maybe it's... Uh, I mean, I think Stravinsky was terrified of sentimentality in that way that his generation were, partly because of the First World War and partly because of the sort of late romantic sort of atmosphere in which they grew up. Um, but, I, you know, there is a place for a certain sort of sentimentality or certainly connected feeling uh, which people relate to and which I think works. Um, it's going to be interesting hearing it with the Santa Cecilia chorus mm. because that wonderful dark... Yes, churchy yes, cabinet yes. sound that they make and of course you know you again have the, the sound of peers in your head um, in the uh, Agnes Day with that which really was I think that's an example of a piece that was really written for what peers could do and actually one thing I've noticed is that Britain does very often do that he'll give whenever I he, he gives a sort of plum he always makes sure he gives a really plum piece to peers that will get I mean whenever I rehearse the war requiem. It's always a la- it's always the annual day that the 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 chorus applaud, and it's not because of the way I'm singing it. It's because of the, it's it's a piece that somehow invites that in the way that it's written, although it's very subtle, and it's the same. And he he always made sure Pierce had a great uh, you know good deal. I mean, Turn of the Screw is a really good example because you know, there's the poor old governess. She sings all evening this unbelievably hard music. And really, there isn't that much music for Peter Quint, but um, you get the equal billing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, no, the, the, the last phrase of the Agnus Dei, Domino Nova's yeah. Pachem, um, which is just one of those perfect phrases. Yeah. But um, um, no pressure at all. <laughs> no, and I mean, Piers got an amazing breath in that. That's an example of his incredible... But it's typically Britain, the way it's sort of, you know, you change gear halfway through in, in a very subtle way. travel the world Ian um, does Britain travel with you I, I, I mean in many respects yes I just wonder how um, what this year is going to do for um, his music abroad because mm. um, some things just don't travel and certain pieces of his have serenade mm. yeah. um, uh, war requiem certainly and yeah. the operas now yeah. but um, um, do you think the doors are going to be opened even wider at the end of this year um, or is there something peculiarly English I mean it's always inhibited Elgar's yeah. um, you know presence mm. elsewhere in the world I get the impression that it's, it has a wide, a wide appeal I remember I, I curated a, a sort of Britain 
our little Britain festival in the Philharmonie at Cologne about 10 years ago and I, I was just really struck by how you know Tabeard Zimmerman and uh, these, these very distinguished um, non-British musicians really took to the took the music and loved it I suppose uh, the song I, I really love the songs and I, I of course I want to keep them for myself and I hate the fact that other people are singing them because I'd rather do them myself but on the other hand it's <laughs> fantastic and one wants these you know the, Jonas Kaufman sings the Michelangelo sonnets um, but you know there's a whole it could go beyond that My, Michelangelo sonnets are right at the beginning of this development as a song composer and um, I hope more people sing Knows your soul With spacious vision you mark and meet This region of sin that you find you in But are not all, but are not all 